The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the life has the Son. I mean, he who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him, and through him, and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's Word this morning, let's bow our heads together and ask His guidance and direction on our study. Father, we thank You for the opportunity we have to study Your Word, that it is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Father, we pray that You would help us to understand the things that we are studying today, that we might see how they relate with the other scriptures that we have been studying, that uh, under the filling ministry and teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit, we might be able to uh, put the doctrines that we are studying to get today together with doctrines that we have learned in the past so that we can continue to apply these things and advance in our spiritual life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We continue our study in 1 John, 1 John chapter 2, and starting in verse 28, we entered into another section of this epistle, and this is the main body of the epistle, the main message. Verse 28, John says, And now little children, a term of endearment, addressing them as believers, as believers who are under his ministry. Remember, at this time the apostle is quite elderly, and so he is uh, probably 90, 93 years of age and addressing the congregation. Little children, abide in him. This is the main command, present active indicative. This is to be the major characteristic of the Christian life. This is the overriding mandate to understand what's going on in the main part of First John, he is challenging the believer to stay in fellowship, to advance to spiritual maturity, and exhibit the kind of love that Jesus mandated in John 13, uh, 35, that we are to love one another as Christ loved the church. This can only be accomplished by staying in fellowship, taking in the Word, and by walking in the Spirit, we're reminded that Galatians chapter 5.14 reiterated the command from the Old Testament that we are to love our neighbor as ourself. And then Paul goes on to show that that can only be accomplished when we walk by means of the Spirit. And when we are walking by means of the Spirit, and that means that we are taking in the Word of God, we are consistently studying the Word. The Holy Spirit is using it in our lives, transforming it from gnosis to epinosis, making it... Uh, usable doctrine in our soul, and as we use it and apply it, he is converting it into spiritual growth, and as a consequence of that over time, there is fruit, and that is the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5 uh, that begins with love. That's the first fruit because that's what Paul's talking about in that section. 
And the Holy Spirit is the one who produces this. We can't manufacture it on our own. We can't go out and say, okay, I'm going to love people I can't stand today. Uh, that it doesn't happen that way. It comes as a byproduct of your study and application of the Word, and the Holy Spirit produces that transformation uh, in us. And this is the main characteristic of the mature believer. And so John says we are to abide in him so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. It's a clear warning that there will be believers who will be embarrassed when Jesus Christ returns because they have had a missed opportunity during life to uh, grow, to advance, to uh, glorify him uh, in their spiritual life. And consequently, there's been no spiritual growth. There is no uh, fruit of the Spirit. There's no, no rewards, no inheritance. And the result is that they're going to have an evaluation at the uh, judgment seat of Christ that is going to be rather pathetic. doesn't mean they'll lose their salvation, but they will lose rewards. Now, a couple of weeks ago, somebody sent me a list of various evaluations that people get from their employers. Now, these, this is the kind of evaluation that people are going to get at the judgment seat of Christ. You, you may know some of these people. First evaluation, since my last report, this employee has reached rock bottom and has started to dig. Now, I know a few Christians like that. Second evaluation that we wouldn't want to find is, I would not allow this employee to breed. Now, this is going to characterize a lot of believers at the judgment seat of Christ. This employee, or rather this believer, is really not so much of a has-been, but more of a definite won't-be. You know, there's some people who are just failures, um, and they're determined to stay that way. Then we all know this person. This is the person who doesn't have problems with mental attitude sins, but sins of the tongue. When she opens her mouth, it seems that it is only to change feet. Then what, one of my uh, personal preferences, this person has delusions of adequacy. And then we all know the believer that this fits. He sets low personal standards and then consistently fails to achieve them. And then my, um, one of my own favorites is this employee is de- depriving a village somewhere of an idiot. So that's just a few. I'm sure that there are... Uh, uh, many evaluations that will be at the judgment seat of Christ much more seriously, and the people will be very, uh, very much ashamed at the fact that they look back over their lives and realize all of the times they could be in Bible class, and they aren't. And that happens. It's so easy to uh, make a decision that on Wednesday night or Sunday morning that, well, it's uh, daylight savings time. I lost that hour of sleep. I just can't make it. Uh, I'd rather sleep in. Or on Wednesday night, your kids have uh, some kind of function, so we're not going to go to church. We're going to demonstrate to our children that we think that sports or whatever it is is more important than doctrine. And uh, I don't know what it's like up here. I know that the cultural tradition down in the South was that you didn't have sports events on Wednesday nights because that's usually when church was. But those kinds of things, of course, are changing. And parents believe that so many other things are important in their kids' lives other than uh, demonstrating to them that doctrine is always the number one priority. And, of course, it's not there. And what happens gradually is the more you can justify and find excuses for not making it to class, the easier it is the next time to 
make excuses and justify not being in church until one day you wake up and you haven't been in, in church, you haven't been to Bible class in a year or two years, and um, somehow you think that life is going okay. See, that's the self-deception of sin and arrogance. We think that life is going okay. We're managing to make everything work. And it may be five or ten years before the divine discipline really sets in hard enough uh, before we realize uh, what we've done to ourselves by rejecting doctrine and not being at church. Doctrine is not an option for the believer. It is mandatory. And that's the whole message of First John. It, John makes statements that are really hard for some people to understand because he, he says, look, believers aren't supposed to sin. They're to be righteous. They're to live a certain kind of lifestyle. And that's basically his message. He's not saying that Christians don't sin. That would contradict what he said in First John chapter 1. But he is saying is that we're not supposed to. We're not somehow to justify it, rationalize it, turn, our, uh, turn a blind eye to it, wink at it, or any other form of uh, justification. We are to deal with it, and the believer is to advance to spiritual maturity because that is the purpose for which he has been saved, which is to glorify God. So he warns us at the very beginning in this section that there are eternal consequences to being a failure in your spiritual life. They are going to have an impact on the judgment seat of Christ, that will impact rewards and inheritance for eternity. And it's not just a matter of uh, being in heaven. It used to really rile me when I was a young pastor. I would hear people make stupid comments like, well, I don't really care whether I'm in a mansion in heaven or in a shack as long as I'm in heaven. You know, that's kind of like that person I just read about who, who sets low personal standards and then fails to achieve them. Uh, it is really sad that people just don't think more seriously about the impact of their own spiritual life for eternity. Eternity is a lot longer than the 30 or 40 or 50 years you're going to be on the earth. Then in verse 29, John starts, his, his, starts to develop the first major point that he is, he is emphasizing here, and that is that the believer is to develop applied righteousness. And verse 29 reads... If you, uh, if you know that he is righteous, and he is saying that they do, but there are some that were denying that. If you know, and you do, but some don't, that God is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. Now, last time I made three points of clarification on this verse. I want to review those and add another point of clarification. It's important that we observe what a verse says and what it doesn't say. First of all, this is righteousness as God is righteous. This is talking about divine righteousness and a divine standard of righteousness, which is not a human standard of righteousness. This is not a religious standard of righteousness. This is not a uh, pharisaical standard of righteousness. Remember, Jesus pointed to the Pharisees who were very moral, very righteous. They were, they were involved in all of the ritual of Israel. They would fast two times a week. They would pray uh, several times a day. They were involved in going to the temple continuously. They were involved in all kinds of good works. And if anybody could make it to heaven on their own, it would be a Pharisee. They were overtly moral people. And Jesus said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not see the kingdom of God. And the point that Jesus was making is that it takes an absolutely perfect righteousness, and that far exceeds any human standard of morality or ethics. This is a righteousness that can come only as a result 
of uh, having been imputed righteous, at having righteousness imputed to you. At the instant of salvation, we receive the righteousness of Christ. That's imputed righteousness. That's not practical or applied righteousness. But as we grow and mature as a believer, and we operate on the basis of our new nature as opposed to the old nature, which is the sin nature, and as we mature, what we exhibit is uh, the righteousness of God that is has been imputed to us, and that's called applied righteousness. But it's more than simple human morality. It's more than human uh, ethics, and it is not some sort of superficial, uh, overt standard, which is what happens in most churches as they try to define this righteousness. This righteousness is not defined in the New Testament through a specific code of conduct. Of course, it is defined in terms of all of the various all of the various mandates and prohibitions in the New Testament. But you have to look at all of them and not, not uh, just some of them, which is what a lot of people do or they add to it. So that's the first observation. This is a perfect righteousness. This is a righteousness that, that is based on the imputation of divine righteousness. second thing that we need to observe about this verse is what it doesn't say, and that is that the opposite is not true. And the statement is that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. The opposite would be that everyone who does not practice righteousness is not born of him. And see, that is the error in lordship salvation, that if someone is not practicing righteousness, that is their standard of righteousness, or whatever they think that is, that if they're not practicing righteousness, or if they're practicing sin, then they weren't really saved, they weren't really regenerate. And that does not follow, that is a logical fallacy. Just because one statement is true does not mean that its opposite is necessarily true. The third thing that we need to note here is that we cannot separate the concept of righteousness in John from the concept of love. Righteousness cannot be distinguished or separated from love. What happens in legalism is you often have, and that's what happened with the Pharisees, is that there was no compassion, no mercy. There was just this rigid external standard that everybody had to had to abide by, and there was no uh, love in relationship. Now, love doesn't mean that somehow that turns a blind eye to infractions of the law, but that in God's character, his divine love and his righteousness work together in perfect harmony. And that is part of what is meant by righteousness here. And then the fourth observation, and this is one that is very important, that is that this verse does not say that we are able to discern and identify the righteousness. It doesn't say that we are to go out and look for righteousness. It doesn't say that you are necessarily going to be always be able to identify the kind of righteousness that's here. It is simply making a, a, a stating a principle. It is not making a mandate for evaluation saying that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. Now, that's not always going to be discernible, and it's definitely not going to be discernible to the unbeliever. Look at the last part of verse 3. For this re- I mean, of verse 1 of chapter 3. For this reason, the world does not know us because it does not know him. In other words, the unbeliever doesn't recognize us, doesn't recognize this production of righteousness. So it's not always... Sometimes it might be obvious. Sometimes you're going to know some mature believers who have advanced to maturity, and you know that in their life there's some real production uh, of righteousness. 
as a result of their maturity. But in the baby believer and in the in the adolescent believer, there, there's a, there's a mixed bag of production, and you're not always going to be able to discern even in our own lives the difference between divine good and human good. We're not going to always be able to discern whether or not we were actually in fellowship or or not. Uh, it's not clear. It's not going to become clear until the judgment seat of Christ after the rapture when we are uh, face-to-face with him in heaven in our resurrection body. So these four things need to be kept in mind uh, in terms of what this verse is saying and what this verse is not saying. Then we come to the first verse in chapter 3. Well, getting ahead of myself. First John, oh, there. First John, chapter 3, verse 1. See how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason the world does not know us, because it did not know Him. Now, a couple of things we need to point out. We won't get very far this morning. We're going to focus on the first clause. See how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us. It begins with the present active imperative from harao, meaning to look, to watch, to pay attention to something. This is a command to uh, the King James translated be, translates it behold, but it is a command for us to look at something with our mind, to concentrate on something, to uh, take some time to meditate and reflect upon a doctrinal principle. And so we're told to look, that is to think about this subject. And that is followed by a pronoun that's called an adjectival interrogative. And in the Greek it is potopane, and it modifies the word love. This word potopane is a combination of two words in the Greek, poios, and dopidon. Now, this is interesting sometimes to do a little etymological study to see how words come about. And it takes two words. It takes the first word, poios, P-O-I-O-S, which means what. And then the second part is dopidon, D-A-P-E-D-O-N. And it combines the two into the word potopane. Now, dopidon has to do with soil, soil type. Uh, and it came to mean, so initially, if you just took the two words, say, what kind of soil? Now, obviously, that's not what the word means. See, that's what's called an etymological fallacy is when people take take a, a combination word and they say, okay, the first part means one thing, the second part means another thing, you just add them together. They do that with 1 John 1, 9 a lot with the word homo legeo. Homo means the same. Legeo means to say or to speak. So they'll say, well, you have to say the same thing as God. You have to look at your sin the same way God looks at your sin. See, that's an etymological fallacy. When you take homo plus legeo and add them together, it comes to mean to confess or to admit, which means that the sum is greater than the, the uh, parts. The sum of the whole is greater than the parts whenever you do word study. So what soil has to do with, with the original or basic etymological meaning, but it came to be an idiom for what, what or what kind of 
what manner of or what quality is something. And that's what it was looking at, what quality is this. And it came to be used idiomatically for the statement, how great or how wonderful or how marvelous or, or um, uh, how, how fantastic something was. And so what John is saying is, look, think, pay attention to uh, this particular subject, how wonderful, how marvelous, how fantastic the love of the Father is that he has given to us. Think about how incredible God's love is that he has given to us. Take some time to reflect upon the nature of God's love. Too often in our society we have such a superficial view of what love is, so we have to take some time to look this morning at what love is, but before we get there, we have to look at something else. Starts off, look, think, pay attention to how great, how fantastic God's or the Father's love is that he has given to us, that he has bestowed upon us. And the word that is translated bestowed, has bestowed, is the aorist active in, or the perfect active indicative of didomai. Now, it's not simply the aorist, it's the perfect, which indicates that it is focusing on a past act. See, in a perfect tense, you're focusing on the present reality. So here we are, the present reality in 2002 of a past act. And whenever you have this verb in the Greek, didomi, D-I-D-O-M-I, that word always emphasizes grace. It means to give, to grant, to bestow. And when God is involved, the emphasis is always on grace, which means the giving is not based on anything. It is unmerited, undeserved. Grace is God's unearned favor, His unmerited kindness or goodness. And so whenever we run across the verb didomi, with God as the subject, we need to think about the grace of God. So we're told, see how marvelous, think about how marvelous the love the Father has given to us or bestowed upon us. That takes us back. The, the perfect tense takes us back to something in the past. This is called an extensive perfect, which emphasizes the present completion of the action, but it takes us back to something that happened in eternity past. When did God bestow this love upon us? He, bestowed, he initially bestowed this love upon us in eternity past, billions and billions of years before he ever created the universe, before he ever created the angels, before he ever created mankind, before he created anything, God loved us because he, knew, he always knew of us, knew us in his omniscience. And that tells us about a doctrine that I don't think we've taught yet, which is the doctrine of antecedent grace. The doctrine of antecedent grace. Let me spell this for you. Antecedent. The doctrine of antecedent grace. There are different types of grace that we talk about. We talk about pre-salvation grace, which is the kind of grace that God bestows on all, belie- on all mankind, whether they're believers or unbelievers. Uh, we talk about uh, uh, common grace. We talk about salvation grace, which is the grace related to God's provision of salvation and everything that took place on the cross. We talk about sanctification grace, everything that God does for us in the spiritual life and providing everything we need for the spiritual life. 
but before the actions of grace occurred in human history, that is, before there was any grace in time, it was all preceded by God's antecedent grace. So antecedent grace emphasizes the fact that God's grace precedes and has preceded all creation, all creatures, and all human life on earth. So the first point is that antecedent grace antecedent grace is based on the interaction between the three elements of divine integrity. Antecedent grace is based on the interaction between the three elements of divine integrity. Now, last time we started off saying that Well, I've got the wrong slides up there somehow, so we'll just blank that out. Okay. We look at the essence of God's sovereignty, righteous, just, love, and eternal life. God is also omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent. He is immutable, and He is veracity or absolute truth. I don't know why we have this problem with the, with the uh, screen, but ever since it got washed the last time, I can't write on it. So let's get that handled. Um, we have these three elements, the righteousness, the justice, and the love of God work together in terms of his integrity. Now, integrity emphasizes the um, complete compatibility of the essence of God in his righteousness, God has a standard. Righteousness always describes the absolute standard of God, and justice describes the application of that standard to his creatures, and love is the motivation. So we have said that the righteousness of God, what the righteousness of God demands, the justice of God supplies, and he is motivated by his love to express his character or his goodness to man in terms of grace. So what the righteousness of God demands, that is when the righteousness of God demands uh, that we are completely consistent with that when, when we fail and we are inconsistent with his righteousness and man is under condemnation, then justice must condemn man. Nevertheless, the love of God motivated God so that he supplied a perfect salvation which is expressed through the grace of God. So this plan of salvation was established in eternity past before God ever created uh, any human being. So the first point is that that antecedent grace is based on the interaction between the three elements of divine integrity. Secondly, antecedent grace is motivated by divine love. Love precedes grace. Grace is the outworking of the love of God towards undeserving creatures. Remember, grace is defined as the unmerited favor of God or the undeserved kindness of God. It is motivated by divine love. So that in eternity past, God took the initiative to solve man's problems. Therefore, point number three, antecedent grace is based on divine omniscience. Antecedent grace is based on divine omniscience. So the three O's, God is first of all omniscient. That means God knows all the knowable. Now think about this. God knows all the knowable. He knows everything that will actually take place and everything that could possibly take place. If you have had an option when you were uh, 20 years of age to, to go into the Army, the Navy, the Marine Corps, Coast Guard, or Air Force, and you chose the Navy, 
God knows what would have happened if you had chosen any of the other branches of service. God knows what would have happened if you had not gone into the service. God knows what would have happened if you had lived in California and chosen to live there rather than in Connecticut. God knows all of the knowable. That boggles our mind. We cannot uh, contemplate, we cannot fully comprehend all that is involved in divine omniscience. So God knows all the knowable. He knows all the actual, and he knows all of the possible. Furthermore, he knows all the knowable immediately. He knows it immediately. That means that, that all of the knowledge that's available is known to God immediately, instantly, all at the same time. It's known to him simultaneously. He doesn't learn anything. God does not increase or decrease in knowledge. That means 10 billion years ago, God knew everything he knows today. He, Ten billion years from now, he will know the same amount. And he knows it all simultaneously. He understands and knows and comprehends all of human history instantly, simultaneously, immediately, and he knows about it for all eternity. Therefore, God has uh, immediately, simultaneously, and eternally known the perfect solution for every human problem and difficulty. He doesn't sit down and think, well, how am I going to solve this problem? He has always known all the problems. He has always known everything that would happen when he created creatures who had volition. He knew everything that would happen, everything that was entailed in giving man volition so that if man disobeyed him, he knew what all the consequences would be, and he knew how to a, a perfect solution for every con, con, consequence. In other words, when God in his omniscience knew all the knowable, he knew all the solutions at the same time. So there is no beginning and after in terms of, of uh, the knowledge of God. He doesn't have a, uh, there's no chronology in God's knowledge. That leads us to point four. Because God's love works together with his omniscience and all of the other attributes of his character, God's love eternally motivates a solution. His love eternally motivates a perfect solution because God has instantly, immediately, simultaneously known all the knowable, including every problem that you and I will ever face. He instantly, immediately, and eternally, and simultaneously knew all the answers and knew exactly what would have to be done in order to provide an answer for every problem and every difficulty that we would ever face. And all of this took place in, in eternity past and throughout all of eternity past. In 1 John 4.10 we read, And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be a propitiation for our sins. That emphasizes the fact that He first loved us, and our love for Him is merely a response to His love for us, which began in eternity past. So having made those first four points of introduction, let's get a definition on point five. Point five definition, in the English language, the word antecedent, means the action of going before, existing before, or preceding. has the idea of something that goes before, exists before, or precedes. So it is uh, the grace that precedes all of creation and the creation of the angels and mankind. It precedes sin. It precedes the fall. It is grace that took place in eternity past. Now, there are two categories of antecedent grace. This is... Point number six. Uh, the definition is that antecedent means going before. That means that grace starts with God and not with man. Point number six, there are two categories of antecedent grace. 
the divine initiative that took place in eternity past and the divine initiative that takes place in time. So there are two categories, eternity past and in time. Man always responds to the divine initiative. God always takes the divine initiative. God is the one who defines the problem and provides the solution. The problem with man is that we want to define the solution, and I mean define the problem, and if we define it in such a way that is inconsistent with, with the Word, then the, the Word of God is wrong, the Bible is wrong, and therefore God's solution is wrong. That's why the message of the cross is foolishness to most people. Man responds to God initi- God's initiative, but grace is always God beginning the solution. So first of all, we have antecedent grace, which is the divine initiative in eternity past. This is God's grace provision for all aspects of grace, for common grace, for salvation grace, and for uh, sanctification grace, for spiritual life grace. Specifically, we can say for us as believers in the church age that antecedent grace, the divine initiative in eternity past, provided a perfect plan for the believer in the church age. And this includes everything that God has provided for us, including everything we need to live the spiritual life. It includes uh, the provision of God the Holy Spirit, the provision of the filling of the Holy Spirit, the provision of the Word of God in a completed canon of Scripture, the provision of all of the spiritual skills and the stress busters, a confession of sin, walking by means of the Holy Spirit, faith, rest, drill, grace orientation, doctrinal orientation, a personal sense of our eternal destiny, a personal love for God, impersonal love for all mankind, occupation with Christ, and uh, inner happiness. All of that was provided for us from eternity past. God provided the uniqueness of this church age and everything that we have as believer priests. No one in all eternity has had the kind of Uh, blessings and provisions that God has given every single believer, every single one of us uh, in this church age. We are unique in all of history. And all of this was provided for and decided upon by God in eternity past. Furthermore, in the divine decrees, that's what happens in in the Old Testament, the doctrine of divine decrees, that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit laid out a plan for human history. Now, we express it that way because we have to understand it that way in our time-bound mentality. But the fact is that all of this occurred simultaneously uh, in all eternity. But to express it in terms of ways we try to understand it, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit got together and had a council. And that's called the Council of Divine Decrees. And in that council, they laid out a plan. They identified what the problems would be. And they laid out a perfect plan and perfect solution for every problem and every difficulty. This is that every church-age believer would have equal privilege and equal opportunity to pursue spiritual maturity. It's not dependent upon your education background. It's not dependent upon the kind of family you grew up in. Some of you had the privilege of growing up in families where there was positive volition and you were uh, able to go to church and take in the Word of God, and you have been positive to doctrine since you were young. Others of you didn't have a clue about the Bible, didn't have a clue about uh, what Jesus Christ had done for you on the cross until you were an adult or maybe even an, an older adult. 
nevertheless, you have the same opportunity as the other person to pursue spiritual maturity. God gives us all equal opportunity. There's no distinction in the body of Christ between male or female, slave or free, uh, Jew or Gentile, because we're all one in the body of Christ. That has to do with equal privilege and equal opportunity. We all have the same spiritual assets. We have the same problem-solving devices or spiritual skills. We have the same filling of the Holy Spirit. We have the same canon of Scripture. We all have these same blessings that God has given us, and that's why it all depends on your volition as to what happens at the judgment seat of Christ. You're given everything that the person seated next to you is given. But what are you going to do with what God has given you? That is the issue for the believer in the church age. What are you going to do with all of these tremendous spiritual assets and spiritual skills that God has given you? What you do with that is going to determine what happens at the judgment seat of Christ. So in the divine decrees, God developed a plan that was based on true freedom and true equality because he gave the same assets, the same abilities to every single believer and it doesn't matter what the human factors are, God has uh, provided a perfect solution for all of that. That has to do with the divine initiative in eternity past, but antecedent grace also includes the divine initiative in time. The divine initiative in time, and this means that uh, grace orientation can only respond to the divine initiative of antecedent grace in your spiritual life. So God has a plan that he establishes in eternity past, but then he makes this applicable in time, in your day-to-day experience, so that each day, day in and day out, you have a responsibility to respond to God's grace. How well you respond to God's grace determines how well you are grace-oriented, and that then leads, to, if we respond correctly, to spiritual advance and spiritual growth. All of that is point number six dealing with the two categories of antecedent grace, the divine initiative in eternity past, and the divine initiative in time. That leads us to point seven. And that is, to understand and appreciate grace, we must first, we must first understand divine love. If grace is the manifestation, the application of divine love, that to understand grace, we must understand divine love. So we have to understand divine love to understand grace, We have to understand grace to be grace-oriented. We have to be grace-oriented in order to manifest grace to one another. And we have to manifest grace to one another in order to apply the basic command for the spiritual life to love one another as Christ loved the church. So we can't separate grace orientation from understanding uh, divine love and understanding impersonal love. That's why we have such an emphasis in this section in 1 John on, on love. So he wants to call our attention to the love that the Father has given us. The only way we can understand love in a human dimension is to spend time contemplating and meditating on the love that God has given to us based upon his grace. Once again, that causes us to throw our attention to the cross and the entire plan of salvation. Romans 5.8 tells us that God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died as a substitute for us. A couple of observations there is that at the cross, God is demonstrating something for us. He's giving us an example. He's giving us a model for what love is. See, modern man wants to think that love has something to do with emotion, has something to do with how you feel, has something to do with attraction in the object of love. But at the cross, there is no attraction in the object of love. 
God is the subject who is performing the action of love, and mankind is the object of love. God demonstrated his love toward us. But what is the characteristic of mankind? He is a sinner. He is obnoxious to God. He has uh, disobeyed God. He is at enmity with God, the Scripture says. He is antagonistic to God. In Romans 1, he is suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. There is nothing attractive about mankind. There was nothing attractive about you when Jesus Christ died on the cross for you. He didn't die on the cross for you because you're such a wonderful person, because you're so nice, because you have such a great personality, or any of those factors. As far as God was concerned at that point, you were a rotten, rebellious sinner, and there was nothing positive about you at all. Nevertheless, he loved you not because of who you were or what you have done or what you will do, but because of who he is and because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. So Romans 5.8 says that God demonstrates what love is at the cross. So that Christ died for us when we were at our very worst, when we were in rebellion against him, when we were disobedient, when we were antagonistic toward him, Christ died on the cross for us. This is the same idea that's in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. That is the grammar of motivation. God loved the world with the result that he did something. That's what motivation is. Motivation is simply the reason why you do something. You can be motivated by emotion or you can be motivated by thought. You can sit down and evaluate uh, a, a particular uh, a purchase plan or investment strategy and after you evaluate all of the pros and cons, decide this is a good investment, and on the basis of cold, hard facts and cold, hard reason, you make a decision. On the other hand, you can be like most people, and you make a decision because you think it's going to make you get rich quick, or for, that you know your friends are in it, or somebody you know says this is a good stock to buy, and so you buy it based on emotion rather than on facts or reason. So motivation has to do with the reason that you do something. You can do it for a multitude of reasons, and it is not necessarily emotion. God, God's love for the world is his care and concern for his creatures, that he desires their absolute best. So John 3.16 says, God so loved the world that he gave his unique son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So in both of these verses, we see that love is expressed in action. It is not something that is manifested through emotion. Now, love is a crucial theme in the epistle of 1 John. The verb agapao, which means to love, is used 28 times. The noun agape is used 18 times. So there are 46 uses of the concept of love in 1 John. That tells us that it is a a major emphasis in this epistle. So in order to understand love, we have to go back to a few basics. So let's look at the doctrine of love under about two or three points here. First of all, definition. This is just a little summary of stuff we've done in the past to bring it back to our thinking so that we can um, have this basis for understanding 1 John 3. Love has different dimensions. They're all interrelated. Unfortunately, if you go to the, any English dictionary, you will discover that emotion and human experience is the primary factor. So we can't start there as believers. We have to start with God. We have to start with passages like John 3.16 and Romans 5.8. So when we do that, what we, do, what we see is that love is a mental attitude which desires the best for its object. 
Love is a mental attitude which desires the best for its object. It is not an emotion. It's not a feeling. Because we're dealing with divine love, God in his omniscience knows what best is. When you enter into a a value-laden term like the best, when that applies to you and me, we often front-load that which is what's best for me and not what's best for the object of our love. Too often we get our own agenda mixed in with uh, somebody else's uh, life, and that is not love, that is selfishness. But in terms of God, it is a mental attitude which desires the absolute highest and best for its object. There is a dedication to the object of love. Um, the, the love of God for mankind is a love that identified a problem, that initiated a solution to a problem, and is willing to do whatever it takes to solve the problem. There are two categories or expressions of divine love in the Scriptures, and we use this terminology and try to explain it every time we use it. First of all, there is personal love, and secondly, there is impersonal love. Personal love is the kind of love that the giver of love has for the object of love when there is attraction between the two, when there is rapport between the two, when there is a compatibility between the two. God cannot have personal love for fallen man because God is perfect and cannot have fellowship with that which lacks perfection. God is perfect righteousness. Man is a sinner. God cannot have personal love because there's no basis for rapport, attraction, or compatibility. But God does have personal love for the other members of the Trinity. God the Father is perfect righteousness. God the Son is perfect righteousness. There is perfect rapport, perfect affinity, perfect compatibility between God the Father and God the Son, so God the Father can have personal love for God the Son, and God the Son can have personal love for God the Father. In contrast to that, we have we use the term impersonal love. Now, impersonal love does not mean some sort of cold, some sort of distant type of love. That's not what is meant. It's the opposite of personal love. Personal love emphasizes attraction between the giver of love and the object of love. Impersonal love emphasizes the fact that there may not be attraction between the giver of love and the object of love. It also emphasizes the fact that you don't have to have a personal relationship with the person that you are demonstrating love to. It may be somebody uh, at at the grocery store. It may be somebody driving down the freeway. It may be somebody who lives down the street from you. It may be the the, uh, parents of one of the kids that your child goes to school with. You don't know this individual at all, and yet you are still mandated by Scripture uh, to love them as you love yourself. So that is the emphasis of impersonal love, and it does not require affinity, compatibility, or rapport. Sometimes we use the term unconditional love. It is a love that must always be based on our understanding of who God is and how God manifests his love to fallen creatures. This is the idea and the pattern behind Jesus' command in John 13, 34, and 35, where Jesus said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another, and by this all men will know that you are my disciple, if you have love for one another. Now, if we take that thought, that all men will know that you are my disciples, we see that there is some external evidence of Christian maturity, and that is the application of uh, personal and impersonal love modeled on what Jesus Christ did on the cross. 
that is related to the application of righteousness or applied righteousness in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 29, and we see that John connects these two. So when we look at the subject of love, we have to understand that more is involved here than simply how we feel. More is involved here than emotional stimulation. More is involved here than pure uh, sentimentalism. We have to realize that this kind of love is impossible, but since God doesn't uh, command the impossible, uh, he must provide the means of accomplishment. We must also recognize from this that impersonal love is, more than anything else, the hallmark of the mature believer. This is what is what characterizes the mature believer and is to be uh, manifested in his life. We must realize that impersonal love is the basis for problem solving in all areas of human relations. That if you don't understand impersonal love, then you can never make it in any kind of human relationship, whether it's friendship, whether it's romantic love, whether it's a business partnership, whatever it might be, because the object of your attraction, the object of your relationship, is always another sinner who is going to fail and sometimes fail miserably. But God demonstrates that his love is a love that even when the object fails miserably, he doesn't give up. So that's why that kind of love is the basis for problem solving in all human uh, relations. Impersonal love is the ability to accept all people as they are, warts and all. Uh, No matter what their failures may be, no matter how obnoxious they might become, no matter what their uh, failures might be or how disappointed we are in them, Impersonal love allows us to still treat them with the highest and best, and we know the highest and best because of Bible doctrine in our soul. Impersonal love gives us stability and strength in our relationships, and impersonal love is always based on grace orientation and doctrinal orientation. Now, to wrap this up, I want to look at a passage in the New Testament that exemplifies the meaning of and the importance of impersonal love. Turn with me to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. Verse 25. Luke chapter 10. Behold, a certain lawyer stood up and put him to the test, asking Jesus a question to see how well he understood the law. Now remember, the lawyer here is a scribe. Scribes were a, a group of Pharisees. Pharisees knew the Old Testament law, but scribes were a special group that had memorized not only the 613 commandments in the Mosaic law, but the thousands of other rules, regulations, and commandments that the rabbis had put on top of the law. When Arnold was here a few weeks ago, he taught on the fact that, that in Judaism, after the return from the exile, the, the rabbis felt that, that the reason that God disciplined the nation and destroyed the nation of 586 B.C. was because they disobeyed the Mosaic Law. So they wanted to build a fence around the Mosaic Law. So you had various groups like the Sopharim and the Tanaim who came along, and they developed all of these different uh, uh, rules and regulations for application of the laws of Scripture. And he used the illustration, which I've always thought was a great one, uh, the illustration about the fact that one of the Mosaic Laws has to do with the fact that you can't boil a baby I mean, boil a kid in its mother's milk. And that was because under, in the Old Testament, in Baal worship, they would, the uh, worshipers of Baal, in order to sacrifice the firstborn uh, kid or the firstborn lamb, they would boil it in its mother's milk. Well, in order to make sure nobody ever made the mistake of boiling uh, a, a, a 
kid or a lamb in its mother's milk, the rabbis came up with all kinds of regulations to make sure you would never mix meat products with, with milk products. And so uh, you can't have cheese on a, on a hamburger. And in Israel, you can't go to McDonald's and get a hamburger and a milkshake. You have to separate, in Orthodox Judaism, you have to separate the eating of meat and the eating of dairy products by at least four hours so they don't mix or, i.e., boil in your stomach. And so there are all these regulations, and they came up with other regulations on top of that, and it becomes uh, quite a rigorous and difficult system. And that's why Jesus talked about the fact that they were enslaved to these uh, rabbinical traditions. And so the scribes were those who not only had memorized all of the written law, but all of the oral law or all of the oral tradition. So they are the hyper-legalists in, in the society. So this particular scribe uh, stands up and puts Jesus to the test and says, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? How does it read to you? And he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And see, in Matthew 25, or Matthew 22, 34, and 35, Jesus summarized the law into those two commandments. So he's probably already done that, and so this lawyer, being a smart jailhouse lawyer, says, well, I'm just going to reiterate what he said in terms of his summary of the law. Now, notice how Jesus summarized all 613 commandments of the Mosaic Law. What's the key word in this summary? It's love. So loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself. So in, let's, let's reverse that. When God wants to give us a picture of what love is, he gave Moses 613 commandments. If you obey the commandments, you are loving. If you don't obey the commandments, you're not loving. See, we want to think about love in terms of healing, and God consistently defines love in terms of how you think and what you do. Jesus said, if you love me, you will what? You will keep my commandments. And so the emphasis in Scripture is that what you can say all day long, oh, how I love Jesus, but if you're not obeying God's commandments and the commandments of Scripture, if you're not putting doctrine first and growing in your spiritual life, using the problem-solving devices, then you don't love God at all. You're just full of emotion and impressed with your own emotion. And so... In this particular passage, we see that, that love for God is obeying the commandments of Scripture. But Jesus goes a step further. Jesus said to him in verse 28, You've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But wishing to justify himself, see, those who are carnal always want to justify themselves, he, he thinks he's going to pin Jesus. He says, Well, who is my neighbor? Let's get down to, to brass, brass tacks here. Who's my neighbor? Who is this that I'm supposed to love? And so Jesus then gives the parable of the Good Samaritan, very famous parable that most people know to some way or another. At least they've heard the term Good Samaritan. Maybe they don't know where it came from. Now, the Samaritans were the pe people who lived in the region uh, just north of Judea called Samaria. Samaria was that region that uh, lies between uh, Galilee in the north and Judea in the south. Those who lived in Samaria were not Jews. They were half-breeds. They were 10, 20, 30 percent Jewish blood, but the rest was Gentile blood. And so the Jews who were pure bloods, who lived in Judea, looked down upon them. There was nothing worse. There was nothing uh, 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 more disgusting than to have something to do with a Samaritan. In fact, if you were a good Orthodox Jew living in Judea, 
and you had to uh, go to Galilee, you would not take the direct route and go through Samaria because you wouldn't want to be defiled by having any contact with Samaritans. So you would cross over to the east side of the Jordan River. You would go north up the highway through Perea. And then when you got up north of the Sea of Galilee, then you would cross back over to the west. So you would go completely out of your way. That would be like um, uh, going dr- driving from here to New York City by way of Albany. You're going quite a ways out of your way just to avoid driving through New Haven. So, um, uh, but that's how the Jews responded to the Samaritans. There, there's very little in the history of racial prejudice. There's very little racial prejudice and and bias in human history that is is worse than the than the level of prejudice that the Jews had towards the Samaritans. So Jesus is using a an unlikely individual here as the as the uh, key figure in this uh, parable. So in verse 30, Jesus said, A certain man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. You always went down because Jerusalem is a higher elevation than Jericho, but you're headed north. And he fell among robbers. That's as he goes along the road. Highwaymen rob him. They strip him and beat him, went off leaving him half dead. And by chance, a certain priest was going down on that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And likewise, a a, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. In other words, uh, here are these um, very spirit, so-called spiritual individuals who are uh, uh, in complete disregard of this individual who's been beaten and robbed and left for dead. But in contrast to the religious elite of, of, uh, of the Jews, a Samaritan comes along, verse 33. A certain Samaritan comes along who's on a journey, comes up on this individual. When he saw him, he felt compassion. Now, the Samaritan does not know this individual. There's no personal relationship. He doesn't know his name. He doesn't know his background. He doesn't know whether he's a good person, a bad person. doesn't know if he has family. doesn't have family. doesn't know a thing about him. So his care and compassion is not based on who and what the, uh, the, the, the victim is. It's based on the character of the Samaritan. So he says, this Samaritan came upon him, felt compassion, and came to him, bandaged up his wounds, poured oil and wine on him. That means he cleaned him out and put some uh, whatever ointments they had at the time on the wounds. Put him on his own beast, and that means that the Samaritan walked while the injured man rode, and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And on the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. So it's costing him money, it's costing him time, it's costing him energy, but he's going to be involved in this individual's life. And he gives money to the innkeeper, says, take care of him. Whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. Then Jesus asked the question, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? Now, remember, the command is to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, the Samaritan is not emoting over the guy who is the crime victim. The Samaritan is not falling in love with this guy. He's just doing what's best for him. He's treating him as he would want to be treated. He is taking care of him. He is operating on the basis of the law. So Jesus asked the question, which of these three, the two religious elite, the priest and the Levite, or the Samaritan, the forbidden one, the, the, the uh, half-breed who uh, you look down upon, which of these is a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And he said, and he, that is the lawyer, said, well, the one who showed mercy toward him, at least the guy had some objectivity. So Jesus said to him, go and do the same. Well, that is the illustration of what impersonal love is. Impersonal love is treating someone as you would want to be treated. It is not simply an absence of mental attitude sins, 
but it is the presence of a positive beneficial actions in favor of the object of that impersonal love. And this is part of the manifestation of righteousness in the life of the maturing believer. Now, 1 John chapter 3 tells us that we are to pay attention to, we are to concentrate on the magnificent, fantastic love that the Father has given to us and he bestowed that upon us from eternity past. And part of this is what happens to us at salvation, that we should be called children of God. And so John is drawing our attention to the fact that this is not something that should be taken lightly, that is, our adoption into the family of God. John 1.12 says, As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. At the instant of salvation, we are adopted into the royal family of God. Romans 8.15 says that you have not received the spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons. We have all the rights and privileges of divine royalty at the instant of salvation. We are put into his family. That is an incredible privilege. That is so great that John is saying, stop, pay attention to this. This is incredible. This is profound. Something like this has never before happened in human history. That God's love for you is so great that at the instant of your salvation, you are made a part of his royal family. And you need to stop and pay attention to that because you have all the rights and privileges that go with that new position. And it is amazing that we have been called this, and as a result of this, you, being a member of the royal family of God, that should have a certain manifestation in the way you live. That takes us back to verse 29. Everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. That is, the person who is born of him is in the royal family of God, and that should eventuate in spiritual growth, which demonstrates applied righteousness. Now we'll go on to see what else that looks like starting in verse 2 next time with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to be reminded that you have provided a perfect salvation and a perfect spiritual life for us from eternity past. It is your grace that initiated and we are to respond. You are the one who began the procedure and we simply respond by faith alone in Christ alone at salvation. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who's unsure of their salvation, uncertain of their eternal life, that you would take, they would take this opportunity right now to make that sure and certain. All you need to do is put your faith alone in Christ alone. Scripture says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we've studied this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.